Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? You know, predicting the future is really hard, even though that's where we're going to spend the rest of our lives. Thank you, Plan 9 from Outer Space. So I used to start every year off with a big tech predictions episode. And I would sit down and try and guess what could unfold in the following year. And I think I had a pretty dismal average on those predictions. Some years I was like, you know, mostly correct, but in a very lame way. And a lot of times I felt like it was because the predictions I made were very, very safe ones. So I was never particularly happy with them. Uh, some of the time I would get big predictions partly right. Uh, very, very rarely I would get one right on the money, but it wouldn't, again, be impressive because the writing would already be on the wall, right? Like saying that a company is going to go out of business when the company is currently like massively struggling, not a big prediction. So yeah, most of the time I was off the mark and sometimes by a significant margin, However, I have learned I should not beat myself up over that because, as it turns out, a lot of people have made really bad tech predictions over the years. Some of those folks were or are way, way smarter than I am. So today we're going to talk about a few predictions that were notably incorrect. Now, let us first remind ourselves, and I'm going to touch on this a couple times in this episode, that often... We end up being wrong in our predictions because we are projecting from what we know is possible today, right? And that's understandable, but obviously you can't bring into the picture anything like breakthroughs in fields that make the previously impossible now possible. Or on the flip side, we can't imagine the hurdles we'll encounter that will slow or stop our progress toward a lofty goal. Now, see also driverless cars, which have proven to be much more complicated than most folks believed a decade ago. Or if you want to be really cynical, you can take things like Theranos and say, well, of course, people believed it was possible, even though it would later turn out that no, 
the technology uh, was not possible or not practical. All right, so we are also really good at misattributing statements to folks. So several of the claims that I'm going to talk about today did not come from the people who often will see their names attached to those statements. And this is a real problem. As I was researching this episode, I would come across a prediction and I'd think, wow, did they really say that? And I would do some more research and I would start digging in and I would start looking for the history of a particular statement and ultimately find out that the person who was doing the supposed prognostication never actually said the ding dang darn thing in the first place. Sometimes someone else said it and actually was trying to predict it. Sometimes the the prediction just appeared to be an invention meant to make a famous person seem foolish. So we'll talk about a few of those too in this episode. Now to kick us off, I thought I would talk about a very likely apocryphal story. In fact, I'll I'll just say I think this one is fake. Uh, the person who allegedly made the prediction would later deny that it ever happened frequently. And there's no reason to disbelieve this person. So this relates to Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft. Now, according to the story, supposedly back in the early eighties, Bill Gates proclaimed that 640 kilobytes of memory quote ought to be enough for anybody end quote. Now, this line pops up again and again if you start looking for examples of people who are making bad predictions or outright dumb statements about technology. And, you know, there's this delicious irony, this person who is really influential in the tech space, making a an outright incorrect statement or prediction. So if you're not aware, 640 kilobytes was a decent amount of memory back in 1981 when this story supposedly took place, but it's a, a minuscule amount of memory these days, like not even worth talking about. Like, you know, computers today, if you if you got a computer that is on the low side, you're still talking something like two gigabytes of memory, maybe up to 64 gigabytes, and then you could maybe expand it up to 128 gigabytes if you've got a 64-bit system. So remember, a kilobyte is a thousand bytes. Okay, well, really, we should be doing this in base two. It should really be a thousand twenty-four bytes, but it really depends upon the company. Like some companies will just round it off, and some companies will use the base two. So either a thousand or a thousand twenty-four bytes. That's what a kilobyte is. So six hundred forty would be six hundred forty times that. A gigabyte is a billion bytes, or if we're going base two, it's technically one billion seventy-three million seven hundred forty-one thousand eight hundred twenty-four bytes. So yeah, like gigabytes are orders of magnitude larger than kilobytes. So obviously the story seems to paint Bill Gates as extremely short-sighted. To assume that 640 kilobytes would be enough for anybody would be an enormous whiff when these days even a bargain computer will have orders of magnitude more memory as standard. But the thing is, Gates says he never actually made this claim. In fact, he said that he was always pushing to create systems that could take advantage of more memory, which is pretty much the opposite of what the claim says. So on top of that, while the general stories that Gates said this at some point at some trade show in 1981, there's no actual record of him saying that. Like, There's no account from that year that says at this event during this you know, conversation, Bill Gates said this thing. So Gates would later say in an interview, quote, I've said some stupid things and some wrong things, but not that no one involved in computers would ever say that a certain amount of memory is enough for all time, end quote. So if Gates had said this, he would certainly qualify as someone making a wrong prediction or statement about tech, but it doesn't seem like that ever happened. There's lots of stuff we could say about Gates that is terrible and deeply disturbing, but when it comes to making this particular prediction, that appears to just be made up in whole cloth. There's a similar story that I want to touch on that also paints a tech leader in a foolish light, but this is due to a lack of context. 
This leader would be Ken Olson. He was a co-founder of a company called Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC. Uh, later on, Compaq would acquire DEC. And then even later, Hewlett Packard would acquire Compaq. So there's always a bigger fish. But the story goes that Olson, back in 1977, gave a presentation at the World Future Society in which he proclaimed, quote, there is no reason for any individual to have a computer in his home, end quote. Now, if we take that quote on the face of it, it sounds like what he Olson was saying is that the very idea of a home personal computer is ludicrous. And considering that the 1970s, the late 70s, that was the launching ground for the home computer, Olson's words appear to be indefensible, like he was just totally wrong. The personal computer would become a huge deal. Today, it's a market that's nearly $200 billion in value. But here's the thing. Olson explained that the problem was people were lifting that statement out of his presentation without the benefit of context. He later defended what he said. He said he, he wasn't talking about personal computers. He wasn't talking about little desktop computers that let us do all sorts of stuff. He obviously believed that those would be a thing because DEC was in that business itself. So there's no reason why his company would be pursuing that line of business if he didn't believe that it was viable. Rather, what Olson was talking about was that you were not going to see people get a mainframe-like computer system installed in their home for the purposes of automating everything, like having a computer-run household. That's what he was talking about. He said, we're not going to see people get a, a computer to be the central operating system of your home. Uh, so we're talking about functions like controlling your lights or you know climate controls or the sort of stuff that we can now do with network products like smart thermostats and light bulbs. Olson was saying he didn't see a future where people were going to buy and install these hefty computer systems and also that people wouldn't want their lives to be run by computers and this would have been back in the 1970s when he made this statement. And he was mostly right, right? Like we didn't see people pay ridiculous amounts of money to automate their homes. Now, these days we do have lots of home automation products out there. And depending upon how uh, deeply integrated your computer uh, calendar is with your life, maybe you do feel like you're being your life is being run by a computer, which that's a possibility, but it doesn't it's not the same thing as holding his statement up and saying, oh, he was totally wrong about home computers. So Olson's point was aimed more at pie in the sky futurists who had imagined the fully automated home, which is a vision that actually dates back decades. Some of my favorite cartoons as a kid were cartoons that were about the home of tomorrow and the cartoonists and writers found goofy ways to poke fun at basic automation concepts. Olson was saying that was the sort of system no one would be buying for their home, and he was right about that. But a misinterpretation of his meaning led people to say that he was absolutely wrong and that he was talking about home computers. Okay, next up, I want to talk about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and how Douglas Adams dreamed up an outlandish technology in the titular guide. When Adams wrote the first version of the story, which was actually a radio play for BBC Radio back in 1978, there are there are like half a dozen different versions of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy story, and no two are exactly alike. You know, you have the radio play, you have the novels, you have a TV series, you've got a movie, like, and each version tells the story slightly differently. Even the even the vinyl record, which took the radio play scripts, changed things. So. <laughs> There's no definitive version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Anyway, when he wrote this back in 1978, personal computers were really new, right? They had not been around for very long. So in his story, he has a character that has this guide to the galaxy, and it is essentially a digital book. It's about the size of a book, and it contains enormous amounts of information on pretty much anything you could encounter and the great big galaxy out there. Although some entries warranted longer descriptions than others. Uh, Earth's entry, for example, was just mostly harmless. And even before that, it was just harmless. While Adams's work reveled in absurdity and comedy, 
This idea of this sort of portable device that could have access to vast amounts of information would persist beyond the pages of fiction. And as companies found ways to build smaller components and then crammed those components into microchips, computers got more powerful and capable of storing more information. Add in the ability to network these devices and things really would start to take off. This brings me to Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel. Back in 1992, Andy Grove famously dismissed the notion that before long, executives would be walking around with a wireless digital personal communications device capable of doing things like sending and receiving email. Or can you just imagine being able to pull up like real time local maps complete with traffic information and a suggested route to get to your next destination? Essentially, Grove thought this vision, which would slowly coalesce into the smartphone, was a pipe dream and that it was something being hyped up by companies that were greedy but unrealistic. Of course, Grove was wrong. The invention of the personal digital assistant and then the gradual convergence of the PDA with the cell phone would give birth to the modern smartphone. And it wouldn't just be executives who would carry them around. It would be tons of people, hundreds of millions of people. Something that was once in the realm of science fiction would now be a reality. Now we all have access to a vast database of information. Some of the information is really useful. Some of it is diverting. Some of it's outright harmful. We can send and receive emails or instant messages even photos and videos. We can jump online to interact with various platforms. We can shop from our phones. We can use them as navigation devices. We could just play with them like toys. It turns out that the pipe dream was in fact a possibility and then a reality. But back in 1992, you could probably understand Grove's skepticism. Apple launched the Newton in 92, and that became the first product that would be called a personal digital assistant or PDA. But that particular device had a lot of limitations and quirks, plus it lacked wireless connectivity. Still, IBM released a PDA with analog cell phone connectivity in 1994, and Nokia followed with a PDA that had digital cell phone connectivity in 1996. So it did not take very long for Grove's prediction to fall flat. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more bad tech predictions. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. 
is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. And next up, sometimes the guy who helped build the thing ends up being very wrong about the thing. So in this case, I'm talking about Robert or Bob Metcalf. So when he was a graduate student, Metcalf worked on ARPANET. So for those who are unfamiliar with ARPANET, you can think of it as sort of the predecessor to the Internet. Uh, you had a lot of engineers and scientists and researchers who worked to create the means to network different computers together even if those computers were far apart from one another. This was a non-trivial task. You know, these different computers worked on different operating systems. They, You could think of it as they communicated in different languages. So you had to create a, a way, a common ground for these different machines to be able to send and receive information in a useful way with other, other machines. And then how does that information travel across uh, communications lines? You had to come up with ways for that to be foolproof, or at least as close to foolproof as you could get, because if it were something where it was just a, a, a solid connection and there was an interruption in that, that connection, then what happens to the process? These were all practical problems that the ARPANET folks had to solve. And the work would become a foundational component for the internet, which would follow after ARPANET. Metcalf wrote an early definitive work describing different ways to use the ARPANET, he also included information on resources and instructions to make use of ARPANET. He would then go on to take a job at Xerox Park. That's a facility that I've talked about in recent Tech Stuff episodes. Very important in various technological innovations, although Xerox itself had a reputation for failing to capitalize on the developments that came out of Park. And while he was at Park, he developed Ethernet. That's the cable-based technology that allows data transfers between connected computers. He based it off of the Aloha net that was used by the University of Hawaii, which relied on radio waves rather than cables to send signals back and forth. Uh, but he, he built upon the technologies of Aloha net to develop Ethernet. Okay, but let's flash forward to 1995. So this is five years after the U.S. government had already decommissioned ARPANET. It had been shut down a couple of years earlier, got decommissioned in 1990. The Internet itself was actually really taking off. Uh, it was helped in large part by the development of the World Wide Web, which you know wasn't a thing when the Internet was first coalescing, but became a thing in the early 90s. And on December 4th, 1995, the magazine InfoWorld published an article written by Metcalf in which the network visionary said, quote, I predict the Internet, which only just recently got this section here in InfoWorld, will soon go spectacularly supernova and in 1996 catastrophically collapse, end quote. So Metcalf thought the Internet was growing beyond the technological and economic capacities that would be needed to support the Internet. He envisioned a scenario in which the money just wouldn't be there to build out the infrastructure that would be required to allow for the explosive growth. He, he didn't deny that the Internet was growing. He just said it's going to reach a tipping point where we're not able to supply it with the technology needed to let it run and it's going to collapse under its own weight. So he also predicted that we were going to see a lot more vulnerabilities in the Internet that would facilitate security breaches. And that would convince folks that the Internet would be too dangerous. Right. Once you have a couple of big security breaches, people would say, oh, we can't 
you know, we can't rely on the Internet because if we do, we're going to potentially lose everything. So he proclaimed that he would even eat his words if he were proven wrong. In April 1997, Bob Metcalf proved to be a man of his word. While at a tech conference, Metcalf had a cake wheeled out. His column was printed on icing on the cake. Uh, some versions of the story say that the crowd kind of turned against him, saying that he was taking the easy way out. And so at least one version of the story says that he then had the actual physical article on paper brought out and then put the article in a blender with some water and blended it into a kind of slurry. And then he ate the goop. But either way, he reportedly did, in fact, eat his own words and admitted that he had been wrong, which I totally respect. Metcalf failed to predict the innovations that would drive the Internet's expansion. And again, that really gets back to that heart of a lot of wrong predictions that we lean so heavily on basing our guess of what comes next by looking at how we do things currently. But obviously, this fails to take into account new techniques and technologies and ideas, which, let's be fair, makes sense, because if we could predict new techniques and technologies and ideas, we would already have them <laughs> like like you can't you can't fault people for not guessing something that hasn't been thought up yet because otherwise they would have thought it up. Of course, technologists aren't the only ones who get tech predictions wrong. Economists can do a real fine job of getting stuff wrong, too, while also referencing a technologist, perhaps in the process. See, in 1998, an economist named Paul Krugman had a dire prediction for the Internet, and he ended up referencing our previous example of Robert Metcalf. Krugman wrote an article in a magazine titled Red Herring and said, quote, The growth of the Internet will slow drastically as the flaw in Metcalf's law, which states that the number of potential connections in a network is proportional to the square of the number of participants, becomes apparent. Most people have nothing to say to each other. By 2005 or so, it will become clear that the Internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than the fax machines. End quote. All right. So this does raise the question about Metcalf's law. What is that? Well, it actually comes from an observation that Robert Metcalf had made way back in 1980, which was that the financial value of a telecommunications network is proportional to the square of the number of connected communication devices on that network. Sometimes we simplify this to say the number of users on a network, but it's really more fair to say nodes or connected devices. Essentially, Metcalf was saying that the more devices you have connected within a network, the more possible connections exist between those devices. And we can express this mathematically with the equation of n times n minus one divided by two. n in this case would be the number of users or connected devices or nodes, however you want to think of it. So if we only have two devices, right, let's say that we've got a direct connection between device one and device two, but that's it. Well, we would fill in our equation. We would use two in place of n. So our equation would be two times two minus one, which is one, and then divided by two. So then that means we get two times one divided by two. That means we eventually just get one. That's the number of possible connections between these two connected devices. You only have one possible connection. But let's say we've got 20 connected devices on this network. Well, that means now our equation is 20 times 20 minus one divided by two. So that means it's 20 times 19, then divide by two, or we get 190 possible connections. So as you add more users or devices to a network, the network's value increases significantly. But Krugman was saying that if no one has anything interesting to say to each other, then you don't really have any added value there. And then growth is going to slow down. And this is going to show that Metcalf's law is flawed. Clearly, the era of social media has proved Krugman way wrong. People spend all day not saying anything to each other, at least nothing of, of substance. And it is uh, going like gangbusters. Even as some platforms are slowing down, others are picking up. Krugman himself had said that he was just trying to be provocative. And sometimes when you do try to be provocative, you end up just being very wrong. And he just happened to be very, very wrong about this. Now, sometimes we get predictions of doom and gloom from someone who appears to be driven by having a vested interest in a competing technology. They say, oh, that technology is going to fail. 
partly because they are supporting a different technology. Uh, there's a quote frequently and also incorrectly attributed to a Hollywood movie producer named Daryl F. Zanuck. He was one of the folks responsible for creating the film company 20th Century Pictures, among a lot of other things. But the story goes that Zanuck famously and incorrectly dismissed the impact of television, saying, quote, Video isn't able to hold on to the market it captures after the first six months. People soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night, end quote. Now, clearly, the movie studios saw television as a an existential threat. I mean, why would people go to the cinema to spend a few hours watching movies and cartoons and newsreels if they could get access to many of those things just from home through the television? For a while, film studios saw television as being a true threat to their very existence, at least until movie studios started to consolidate with TV studios. So, of course, it would be delicious to point to a movie mogul who stuck his neck out to proclaim that television would be no more than a passing fad, only to be proven very wrong and television would become an incredibly important component in communications. Now, I'm not saying that no one at all ever made these quotes apart from like, like I'm not saying they were just invented, but it certainly doesn't appear to have been Zanuck. He is not the person who said these things. Uh, the website quote investigator actually looked into this particular statement. The earliest version they found from the statements about video and the plywood box actually came from a wall street journal article back in 1951. And it appeared as two separate statements from two different people. So the video isn't able to hold onto the market it captures after the first six months statement supposedly came from a movie executive based out of New York. The phrase people soon get tired of staring at plywood box every night came from quote, a San Franciscan end quote. In fact, it doesn't even get specific enough to say it's a movie executive in San Francisco, although we can assume that was the case. However, either way, Zanuck, the person who often gets attributed with this, these pair of quotes that are combined into a single quote, he was based in Hollywood. So presumably he was neither of the unnamed individuals who provided the Wall Street Journal with these quotes. So Zanuck is in the clear. Still, assuming the Wall Street Journal reporter was not inventing quotations out of thin air, there were two people in the movie business who were brazenly predicting the downfall of television. Now, this was during a time when movie theaters were starting to see a rise in attendance. There had been multiple years of audience drop-off. So like four years in a row, they saw smaller audiences for movie theaters. And then things were picking up in 1951. So it's possible that movie executives were chomping their cigars and saying, ha, TV took a swing at us, but it's not staying around. Light my cigar with another $100 bill or something. I admittedly have a very cartoonish imagination. They probably weren't saying that, but it does make it sound like movie executives were thinking, oh, television took a temporary hit out of our business. But as it turns out, people prefer their experience in the theaters. TV is too expensive for the average person, et cetera, et cetera. And so now we're just dismissing it. And of course, it would turn out that television was not just a passing fad, at least not a short one. You could argue that maybe because of cord cutting and stuff that it was a very long passing fad, <laughs> but uh, but certainly at the time, it wasn't just a passing fad and that predicting that people would get tired of TV and come back to the movie theaters was just an optimistic prediction on behalf of the executives. Another example of someone making a prediction when he had a vested interest in the outcome is Steve Ballmer, the former CEO of Microsoft. Ballmer was actually employee number 30 at Microsoft when he joined in 1980, and he became CEO of the company in 2000. His presentations are the stuff of legend. If you've not had the experience of digging up a clip of Steve Ballmer on stage at some event over on YouTube, you need to give that a go. There are a lot of different ones. The famous one is developers, 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 but that's just one. You know, you should check them out. Just make sure your volume is turned down a bit because that dude loves to yell and scream. And intense is a good way to describe him. Anyway, in 2007, Balmer reacted to something that unbeknownst to pretty much everyone at the time 
was actually going to lead to enormous changes in the tech space. And that was the debut of the Apple iPhone. Balmer said, quote, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance, end quote. And he went on to call the iPhone a, quote, $500 subsidized item, end quote. He predicted that Microsoft's software would be in most phones on the market and that while Apple could make a lot of money selling phones, they would not make up a significant amount of the market share. They would maybe have two or three percent of the market at best. So Microsoft's strategy was a lot like what we would see from Google a little later on, which was to create the operating system and the software for smartphones, but to leave the manufacturing to the handset companies. Apple was taking an all-in approach rather than licensing software to businesses that made the hardware. Balmer was convinced that was the bad way to go, that it made way more sense to just focus on the software and license it out to the hardware companies. But as it turned out, Apple's strategy worked like gangbusters. In 2007, Apple sold around 1.39 million iPhones. That was the year that they introduced it. They didn't offer it for sale until the back half of the year. In 2008, Apple sold 11.36 million iPhones. So more than, you know, or around 10 million more than they had the year before. By the end of the next year, that doubled again at around 20.73 million units sold. In fact, Apple saw sales numbers increase every year until you get to 2016. Because in 2015, the company sold 231.22 million iPhones. And in 2016, it sold, quote unquote, only 211.18 million units. Still more than 200 million units, but a drop of around 20 million. As for Microsoft, the company pushed hard to try and establish a foothold in smartphone operating systems, but it just never really worked out for the company. Uh, companies stopped making Windows phone devices in 2017, and the company completely ended support for the operating system in 2022. Okay. We're going to take another quick break, but we still have some more bad predictions to get through. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. 
Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wildcard on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. And just before the break, I was talking about Steve Ballmer dismissing the iPhone. And of course, it turned out that he was totally off. I mean, granted, it's not like he could have said that the iPhone's going to be a huge hit. He was leading a major competitor to Apple at the time. So whether he believed that the iPhone truly was just going to be a failure or not, I can't say. But I certainly don't think he could have said anything different. Anyway, Apple also was not immune to making bad predictions. Steve Jobs, a man through force of personality and a famous intolerance for deviation from his vision, returned to a struggling Apple in the 1990s and set it on a path to become a company that is today worth more than $2.8 trillion at the time of this recording. Anyway, back in 2003, Apple introduced the iTunes Music Store for the first time. So the company had already introduced the iPod a couple of years earlier, but now it was introducing an online digital music store where you could buy albums and tracks either to port over to an iPod or to listen from your computer. Jobs believed the customers wanted to own their music. He was dismissive of the business model that was being used by Rhapsody and by Pressplay, both of which offered subscription services to customers to get access to music. So you pay a certain amount of money each month, and then you're able to listen to music that is covered by these different companies. Jobs said, quote, we think subscriptions are the wrong path. One of the reasons we think this is because people bought their music for as long as we can remember. We bought our music on LPs. We bought our music on cassettes. We bought our music on CDs. And we think people want to buy their music on the Internet by buying downloads just like they bought LPs, just like they bought cassettes, just like they bought CDs. They're used to buying their music, and they're used to getting a broad set of rights with it. When you own your music, it never goes away. When you own your music, you have a broad set of personal use rights. You can listen to it however you want. End quote. And it's not like Jobs was wrong, right? People do like to own stuff. I think it's safe to say that most people definitely prefer owning music to losing access to something because a licensing deal has expired. I'm sure everyone out there has had that experience where something that used to be covered on one of the streaming services you listen, you either listen to or watch or whatever goes away because a licensing deal expired or because the company that was in charge of it decided to get rid of it because of, you know, sticky residual deals. I'm looking at you, Max. And Zaslav, who would remove stuff so that he wouldn't have to worry about paying residuals to people. Anyway, we know that people prefer being able to access their stuff. They hate it when it, the stuff goes away. But despite all that, the subscription-based business model has seen incredible success. It's a very convenient thing. Like, instead of buying track by track or album by album, you get access to a huge library of material. In fact, it was so successful that Apple would introduce its own music subscription service in 2015. Notably, Steve Jobs had passed away in 2011. So it didn't happen within his lifetime. And he, again, he was famously dismissive of it when he introduced the, the music store. But in 2015, we got Apple Music, which would expand to include not just music tracks, but also video. Oh, also, uh, journalists get stuff wrong a lot, too. Goodness knows I've gotten a lot wrong, although I really shouldn't reference myself as a journalist. I'm not really a journalist. I don't have those qualifications. But David Pogue wrote a piece for the New York Times about Apple in September 2006. That piece was called iPhone Rumors, and it starts off with, quote, Everyone's always asking me when Apple will come out with a cell phone. My answer is probably never, end quote. And of course, Apple introduced the iPhone the very next year. But if you read Pogue's piece, he lays out some really good arguments about why it would make sense to be skeptical that Apple would release a phone. One of his really big points is that 
telecommunications carriers, you know, the companies that actually own the infrastructure that allows communication across devices, you know, your, your AT&Ts, your Verizons, et cetera, they have a lot of power when it comes to hardware. The telecommunications companies can actually approve or deny features on devices. Essentially, they do this by saying, okay, well, we're not going to let your hardware work on our network if you include that feature. We don't want to support that feature. We will not allow you to use that device on our network if they don't like something. So Pogue's point was that Apple was not the type of company that would compromise or allow some other business that level of control into their processes. And that was reasonable. Like you can't imagine Steve Jobs being told in no uncertain terms, like we're not going to allow that. You have to design it this way. So it seemed to be a reasonable conclusion to say that Apple was not going to release a phone in the first place. But as it turned out, Apple worked very closely with AT&T for the launch of the iPhone. It was an AT&T exclusive here in the United States when it first launched. But common sense would have suggested that Apple would not have managed such a relationship and that the company would have instead focused on technologies where it would maintain near total control of the user experience. So you can understand why Pogue made that particular statement. It just turned out to be completely wrong. But uh, again, just based on the information that was available, it was an understandable one. So it is really fun to go back over these kind of old statements and old predictions and see with the benefit of hindsight how off they were. Or at least it's fun to me because, again, I used to make predictions and I was often just as wrong or sometimes far more wrong than any of the examples I've cited here. I think that uh, some of you all might even remember one of those. Uh, I, I famously predicted. I, I don't know. Famous. That's that's giving myself too much credit. I, uh, I very much predicted <laughs> that the iPad was going to be a flop. I could not see the iPad succeeding. And that was because tablet computers had been around for ages. Even touchscreen tablet computers had been around for quite some time, but no one had managed to make one that appealed to the broader consumer market. The tablet computers that were in use were niche products. They were used in uh, very specific applications. Like you had some in the sciences, you had some in medicine, but you didn't really have a consumer tablet that had seen great success. And I just couldn't imagine people wanting something of that form factor. Too big to be easily portable unless you're carrying a bag around. Uh, too small and too limited to be really useful if you wanted it for something like productivity, because typing on a screen is far slower than typing on a keyboard. So I just assumed that even Apple wouldn't be able to make the tablet computer a commercial success for the consumer market. And I was totally wrong. I doubted Steve Jobs's marketing ability. I doubted Apple's engineering and making a product that had a very compelling user interface. And uh, my prediction was 100% incorrect. And I own it. It was, uh, you know, I, I felt like I, I had based it on some solid ground, but it all turned out to be quicksand, I guess. So it can happen to anyone. I don't think I'll be bringing the predictions episodes back anytime soon. They would cause me huge amounts of stress because it's hard, right? It, it involves doing a lot of, of work to just look at what is the current state of technology. And even working from that, I have an incomplete picture because obviously there are people and companies working on things that are not yet publicly known. And so I have an incomplete picture from that respect. And basing predictions off of an incomplete picture is even more shoddy than just, you know, having to concede that you can't anticipate the innovation that's going to follow in the months ahead. So I don't think I'll bring it back. We'll see. Maybe toward the end of the year, I'll think, ah, oh, heck, I'll give it another shot and I'll see if I can predict what will happen in 2024. Uh, but honestly, when I look back at the last like three years, <laughs> where when I stopped doing predictions episodes, I see so many examples of stuff I never would have predicted. I, I definitely wouldn't have predicted Elon Musk purchasing Twitter, for example. That would not have been on my list. Um, I'm not sure that I would have predicted, you know, everyone knows my opinion of Elon Musk is pretty dodgy, but I don't think I would have predicted that Elon Musk taking over Twitter would lead to such a train wreck, a slow, uh, degrading 
situation for Twitter at this point, as the company appears to be falling apart. I don't know that I would predicted that either. So, um, yeah, we'll see if, if I'm feeling spunky at the end of the year, maybe I'll give it another go, but it is interesting to keep an eye out for these. Maybe I'll also do another episode where I'll take good predictions stuff that people thought was coming across the horizon. And it turned out they were, you know, mostly right, or maybe completely right. That would be fun too. It's fun to look at the ones where we got it totally wrong because it kind of brings a little humility into the situation. But once in a while people will make a prediction and boy, howdy, they get it bang on the money. So maybe I should uh, try and do an episode that's based on that too. In the meantime, I hope you are all well, and I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.